0: Good morning, everybody. If you don't know who I am, my name is Joel Repick. I'm the lead pastor here at Crestmont. And especially if you're visiting this morning, I want to extend a personal welcome to you. We're so glad that you're here. I would love the opportunity to meet you. And as a matter of fact, there's an opportunity immediately following service. Once a month, we have newcomer's pizza. So if you uh, have been coming to Crestmont for the last couple months... Uh, whether I've met you or not up until this point, I'd love to meet you right after service on the other side of this back wall in the cafe, and you can just grab a slice of pizza. It's not a presentation anything like that. You can grab a slice of pizza and be on your way. Bill will give me the opportunity to say hello to you. Uh, it seems like more and more we have so many visitors coming through our church, and it does my heart good to know who you are and to know your face and your name, and this gives me the opportunity for that. So I'd love it if you stopped into the cafe afterwards. If you've been coming longer for a couple than two or three months, don't sneak in and get pizza. I'm just <laughs> there were a lot of people sneaking in last time to get pizza, though. but you know what? If there's leftovers, God is good, and we are generous, and, and you, can, you can have some pizza, all right? I'm so excited for our 100th anniversary weekend in church. I really hope that on the celebration on Saturday night, as well as our two worship services on Sunday that you'll have the opportunity to join us. You you probably have noticed, Mary made reference to it, that the location changed for the Saturday night event. Uh, The church that we had scheduled with uh, simply made a mistake on their end, on their calendar, and they double booked us, but Wildwood Chapel was really welcoming to us, opened their doors to us. So Saturday night, we're going to have a great celebration. It's for the whole family. We hope that you'll come out. And then the two services on Sunday, my prayer for that Sunday, November 19th, is that God really uses these two men of God, Kelvin Walker and Jamar Mike, uh, to to deposit a word into us as we go into um, our our 101st year, really, after we celebrate our anniversary. And so um, I hope that uh, you'll come out and that God binds our hearts together in those times for the next season that he has for us. Well, church, this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 16, so you can turn there in your Bibles or get there on your phone, or it will be on the screen behind me. I also just want to remind you, we welcome uh, children and babies in the service. Um, You shouldn't feel uncomfortable having them with you in the service, but if you feel like you need to step out, we do have a live video feed. You can go out these doors here and go straight down the hallway into the prayer room, and we have a feed of the service going into that room if that's helpful for you. Well, last week, uh, I introduced to you four discipleship questions that we used in exploring the text together, and I mentioned to you that moving forward, at least for the foreseeable future, these are going to be the four questions that I use when I'm before you like this, looking at the Word of God with you. There's a couple reasons for that. First of all, because these are the discipleship questions that we're going to be using in various places Throughout our church, some of you have already run into these questions in different programs or ministries or smaller gatherings of the church. So for the sake of continuity, I'm going to be using them as well on Sunday mornings. But also, I'm hoping it's helpful to you, uh, this exercise in going through these four questions together, in that it gives you a handle or a tool that you can use in your own exploration of the Word of God. So I hope that on your own, when you're opening up your Bible and reading that these four questions can give you some kind of outline of the the kinds of things you want to be asking as you approach the text. So the first question is, who is God? Uh, We mentioned last week that although Scripture uh, contains commands, instructions for living, primarily it is not a revelation about how we should live, even though there are commands that tell us how we should live. Primarily it's not a revelation about History, even though there's a lot of history in the scriptures, primarily the Bible is a revelation about God. The primary purpose of the scriptures is to tell us who God is. So we always want to ask that question from any text that we're reading. Who is God? What is he like? What has he done? What is his character like? Who can we know him to be? When we get a revelation of who God is, we very quickly get a revelation of who we are. We rightly understand ourselves in light of God's identity. We know who we are because we learn who he is. He's our creator. We're the created ones. And we can only really rightly understand ourselves when we first understand him. But then we get a picture of who we are. Once we've answered these two questions of identity, who is God and who am I in light of who God is then we can answer two questions of discipleship application. What is God saying to me? What is this word saying to me about my attitudes, actions, beliefs, behavior, circumstances, so on and so forth? And then the final question, what am I going to do about it? Because it's really not until we get to the doing that the word of God gets activated in our lives. It's in doing what we learn, not just absorbing information, but doing the things that God deposits into us by His Word that we experience everything the Holy Spirit has for us as we read Scripture together. So before we read Luke 16, I just want to remind you of the context. In Luke 15 and 16, Jesus has been teaching in the presence of the Pharisees, that is, this group of religious leaders in Jesus' day who have a lot of power and influence. ...in the religious system. And over and over again, we're reminded in these longer teachings of Jesus... ...that these religious leaders are listening in on the things that Jesus is saying. And I think Jesus is really posing a question to the religious leaders. If you're so religious, then why is there so little love? If you're so religious, if you claim to be the cream of the crop when it comes to religion then why is it in your religious system that there's so little love to be found? So in Luke chapter 15, Jesus critiques the inability of the religious system to embrace the sinner. In Luke 16, he addresses a different issue. Why is it that resources are not being mobilized to help those in need if you claim to be so religious? Jesus lived in a society where there were thick walls around social classes of people. There was a ruling elite that was very wealthy, extraordinarily wealthy compared to most of the people. There was a smaller class of people next to them, connected to their wealth, who weren't quite as wealthy as that ruling class, but themselves, they were doing pretty good. The group of religious leaders that Jesus is addressing in these passages is in that group. Uh, We know that they have some resources. But the vast majority of people in Jesus' day were either peasants or slaves. Much of the Roman Empire was made up of masses, hordes of poor people with little recourse to justice or to resources. We get a clue as to the attitude of the religious leaders in Jesus' day when it says in Luke 16, 14, earlier in the chapter than what we're going to read today, that the Pharisees, as they listened to the teachings of Jesus, who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. So we get a clue into their hearts. These this religious group of people, are people with resources at their disposal, but they love their money more than they love God. And this is some of what Jesus is getting at in his teaching to them. So we're going to pick up in Luke 16 verse 19. Jesus tells us a parable. Remember, a parable is a fictional story that has a point. Jesus uses these stories frequently in his teachings to get across to us something about the heart of God, and then we can discern who we are in light of God's identity. If you'd stand to your feet, as is our custom, in honor of God's word, as we read together, Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, And longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died. And the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Jesus sets up this story of contrast. There's a rich man who Jesus says lives in luxury every day. He dresses in purple. The dye purple was very hard to come by in Jesus' day. It was very expensive and rare. So the ability to wear purple indicated extraordinary wealth. Fine linen. Some commentators think that what's actually being referenced here by Jesus is the quality of this man's undergarments. You know that you've made it when you wear fancy underwear, all right? This man is wearing fancy underwear every day. He's eating, feasting in his house every day. This is his reality, living in this wealth. At his gate, locked outside of the gate, is is a beggar named Lazarus. Interestingly enough, this is the only time... In all of Jesus' parables that Jesus names one of the characters in his fictional story. The name Lazarus means God, God helps. It derives from a word that, mean, that means God helps. And there's something reflected in the heart of God in this. Jesus, as he tells the story, is dignifying the existence of this beggar in the story by naming him while leaving the rich man nameless in the story. Now... He sets up this this, uh, contrast with the beggar, because Lazarus has nothing. Uh, He is covered in sores. Um, He is begging for food. He is hoping that he gets the rich man's trash. That is a good day for him, if he can eat out of the trash of this rich man. He is a nobody. He is living on the complete bottom rung of society. It comes about in the story that Jesus tells that both of these individuals die and we'll pick up from there in figuring out what it is that we can learn, first of all, about who is God. I want to answer this question today this way. Who is God? God is Savior. He gives us eternal life by grace through faith. Let me explain what I mean. When you read this passage, it's hard to not be startled by the vivid descriptions of torment and hell that are in the passage. As a matter of fact, this passage, this portion of Jesus' teaching probably contains the most vivid descriptions of eternal torment, not only in the New Testament, but also in the whole of Scripture. Uh, When I first learned this story, I learned it from a very strict Christian school teacher, and she drove the hell part of the story home for us, all right? So that's what I remembered about this story, how scary this parable was that Jesus told. Now listen, I don't want to diminish at all the seriousness of Jesus' warning in this passage to the religious leaders. Undoubtedly, he is telling them that they are risking falling under the judgment of God because of the way that they are unresponsive to the grace of God. And indeed, there is a strong warning here that the way we respond to the grace of God in this life has great and dire consequences. So I don't want to diminish that at all. That being said, this is not primarily a story about judgment and hell. Primarily, it's a story about the grace of God in contrast to the lack of grace that is in the religious leaders. Because if the rich man experiences agony in this story, Lazarus experiences God's grace... To an astounding degree. Listen, because of the sores on his body, because of his state of just mere survival, it is impossible for a man like Lazarus to be a good religious practicing Jew in the system in which he finds himself. He can't worship in the synagogue. He doesn't have the time or energy or ability to be a student of the word of God. He can't participate in temple worship. He is shut out from the religious system entirely. And yet he is the one in the story who experiences salvation. Why? Because he is the recipient of God's grace that gives him eternal life. It turns out that on the day when Lazarus dies in the story, that he's really not dead. That it's not the end. It's just the beginning. And the quality of life that he enters into after death far exceeds What he experienced in this life. How is it that he's the recipient of such a great gift from God? Well, it's by God's grace. Well, how do I know? Well, it's because there's nothing this man could do to earn his salvation. He was not in a position to earn the love or grace of favor or favor of God. He just received it just because God loved him. And how did he receive it? By faith. I think this is the significance of the angels carrying this man to Abraham's side. Abraham, as you may know, is a father of the Jewish nation. But one thing we know about him in both the Old and the New Testaments was that primarily Abraham was a man of faith. And I think as Jesus tells the story, he associates this poor man Lazarus with Abraham's faith to say this man had nothing except that he believed God. He had nothing except that he believed that God would rescue him. He had nothing except to believe that God would save him. And that is all that is needed for God to honor this man's faith, give him grace, and give him eternal life. It says later in the story, as we think about the identity of God in this passage, that God is so intent on communicating his saving heart to us that he has left witness in Moses and the prophets which is another way of saying in the scriptures, God has left witness to us of his saving grace. And all of Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets, what they point to is this man, Jesus Christ, who who went through the things that Lazarus went through so that we could be saved. He was shut out so that we could brought in. He suffered so that we could be comforted. At the cross, Jesus accomplished our salvation so that we could receive eternal life by grace through faith. I think Jesus deserves a hand clap for that. Amen? (laughs) Grateful for what he's done for us. Now, if that's who God is, if he is savior and if he operates in grace toward us, then who are we in light of who God is? Well, I think one thing comes through very clear in this passage. First of all, that whatever we are, whatever our identity is, it is not connected to the circumstances of our life. As it turns out, both of these individuals were not what met the eye in this life. Both of these individuals, their identity was deeper than the circumstances and the stuff that surrounded them or did not surround them. Death became the the thing in this story that revealed who they really were in all of eternity. I think there's a temptation for us to look at our circumstances, to look at the things that surround us, to try to gain a sense of our identity. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about my daughter, Jade. She's seven years old, and she loves teeny, pretty things, beads and rocks, and she's always picking up. It's like like her eyes are always scanning the floor for teeny little pretty things, and she has this box. She calls it her pretty things box. It's just this plastic box. It has small compartments in it, and she puts all of her little pretty things into that little box, and she organizes them and reorganizes them. Sometimes she organizes it by size. Sometimes she organizes it by material that it's made of. Sometimes she organizes it by color. She keeps a magnifying glass with this box, She opens it up, and she can spend a long time pulling out these little things from her box and studying them with her magnifying glass and then putting them back into her compartments. Now, I love that. I love it. It's so cute. If you guys would see it, you would know how cute it is. It's really cute. All right? So I love that, and it's cute in a seven-year-old, but it made me think about how very many times we treat the circumstances of our life like my daughter treats her pretty things box. We have these little compartments, And we put little things into them, and we take them out and we examine them, and we hope that the more we have, the more of a chance that we will experience who we really are or get a sense of our identity or worth or value or so on and so forth. What I've seen in a lot of people's lives is really there's four compartments in their pretty things box that they're hoping to collect things in. Finances, function, family, and friends. Four things. Finances, function, family, and friends. Finances is pretty obvious. It's so easy in our society to look at the amount in the bank account and to think that we can feel more secure, to think that we can feel more valuable depending on the number that shows up there when we check it. You know, function, what I mean by that is our role. You know, the, the roles that we play in this life, whether it's the role you have at your job or the role that you play in church as a church member or the role you play as a volunteer or so on and so forth. And we hope that the more roles we can amass for ourselves and fill and the better we can play at those roles and the more esteem we can get from other people, the more valuable that we can fill. Or family. For some of us, this is the place that we really want to collect. This is the place that we really want to Add things up, and we hope that the more love and affirmation we can feel from our spouse or our kids, or the more perfect Thanksgivings or Christmases that we can have, that it will increase our sense of belonging, right? Or security, or friends. Hope that the more friends we can have, the more circles that we can be included inside of, the more places we can go with those friends, the more affirmation we get from them, the better that we feel about ourselves. And so there we are with our pretty box. Putting all of these things, and you might value one compartment more than the other. For some, it might be finances more than friends or family more than function, but probably for most of us, it's a mix of those things. Now, here's what I see about our identity in this passage very clearly to me, and you see this especially in Lazarus, that my identity is revealed in who I will forever be in Christ, not who I am temporarily in this life. My identity is revealed not by how much stuff I have in my pretty box, right? But by how much, by who I will be forever in Jesus. If you want to know who I am, then look to my eternity. If you want to know who I really am, then look at the way that God's grace has filled up all of my compartments for all of eternity. See, this means a couple of things for us number one, that when the compartments are full, it's wrong for us to look at them and to think that that's our identity. This rich man, it's very likely that all of his compartments were filled, right? We're doing pretty good. The finances compartment, he was doing good in. The function compartment, with his wealth, probably came a lot of leadership and influence and roles that he could play. We know he had at least... Five brothers in the family compartment and probably with his wealth, as is often the case, came a lot of esteem and friendships. He's doing well in all of these compartments. But at the moment of his death, it turns out that none of those things that he had spent so much time collecting and amassing for himself and finding his identity in, none of those things actually had anything to do with his identity. Amen? (laughs) None of those things had anything to do with actually who he was. Lazarus is in the exact opposite position. There's nothing in his finances compartment. Nothing. He's hoping that he can get trash for the day to survive. There's nothing in his finances compartment. You can be sure there was nothing in his function compartment. He's a beggar. Beggars don't have influence. Beggars don't get to tell people what to do. Beggars aren't esteemed because of the things that they accomplish. As far as we know, there's no family or friends to be found. He is left alone at the gate of this rich man. His compartments are empty. Now, this is the powerful thing, friends, about identity. As it turns out, if your compartments are empty in this life, it doesn't mean that you won't have a full identity that's revealed in the next life. See, listen, when your compartments are empty... It may hurt. It hurt for Lazarus. You can be sure that he experienced the pain of no finances. There's a real visceral pain that comes with that. Some of you know it. Listen, he may have experienced the pain that comes with not feeling like you have anything to contribute. He may have experienced the pain of loneliness when he had no family and friends. But friends, when you are in Jesus, when your grace when grace is what has defined you, when your identity is in God as Savior, it means that the pain is not the definition of your identity. It means that you are more than the pain that you are feeling. It means that you are more than the lack that you are experiencing. It means that God has riches for you that far outpaced the poverty, relational or material, that you are experiencing in this life. See, the pain just becomes a reminder that someday it's going to get revealed who I really am. Amen? Amen? The pain just becomes a reminder that someday it's going to be fully revealed who I am and that this is not the full picture. So my identity is not found in my temporary circumstances. Friends, do not put your identity in your temporary circumstances. God wants something so much better for you. Don't put your identity in your bank account or in the roles that you fill or in how perfect your family is or in the amount of friends that you have because as it turns out, all of those things are temporary. And very many times we get reminded in this life, of how fleeting and temporary they really are, don't we? We get reminded. So, my identity is not in that. So, what is God saying to me out of this? What is he saying to the Pharisees that he is teaching to? Well, I think this, that how we handle temporary blessings reveals what I really think about my identity. How I handle temporary blessings reveals what I really think about my identity. And this is where Jesus is getting to the heart of the issue in the religious leaders that he is addressing. See, the issue here is that he is talking to people who are religious but have no sense of their real identity. They've put their identity in their pretty box. They've put their identity in these compartments being filled. And when certain attitudes rise up in me regarding my pretty box and the compartments therein, well, it reveals that I have forgotten who I am and whose I am. If my attitude towards the things in my pretty box are greed or envy or fear, well, it really reveals an identity issue. It's more than just a bad attitude. It's that I have forgotten who I am. Greed is this attitude that says I need more things in my pretty box to feel valuable or secure or important. So I need to collect more and more things. I'm not going to let go of them because letting go of them is going to feel risky because I put my identity in the number of things that are here. Envy is the thought that the person next to me has more things in their pretty box. And as a result, they're more valuable and I'm less valuable. So I need to try to catch up to where they're at and try to get more friends or family or function or finances for myself. Fear is the attitude that says I've got to hold on to everything that's in this pretty box because I'm getting my sense of security from these compartments. And if I lose them, it will be the end of the world. All of those attitudes reveal an identity crisis. Friends, there is a freedom in Jesus that comes when you separate your identity from those silly compartments in the identity, in the, in the box, <laughs> you know? There is a freedom that comes. Listen, when you no longer have to put your identity into the finance compartment, it means rich or poor. Rich or poor, you know who you are. Your identity is not attached to your bank account. and You know I belong to Jesus in an eternal way because he has revealed himself as Savior. So whether I have much or I have little, I'm able, as the Apostle Paul says, to walk in contentment. And there is never a freer life than walking in contentment as it relates to our material goods or our, uh, or our finances. Listen, when it comes to function, listen... Uh, You should be glad for all of the times that God gives you leadership or influence or roles to play. But when you are freed from that pretty box, it means that, you know what? If no one notices me, if no one thanks me. See, my identity is no longer tied to the praises of other people. My identity is no longer tied to to the praises that other people can give me. I'm free from that. It allows me to serve whether people notice or not, whether people are thankful or not, I'm able to serve. Or when it comes to family, right? Um, Being freed from the pretty box means that we're able to love our family with no strings attached. It means I can love my kids and I can love my wife without manipulating them to get more in my box. It just frees me to love them. I just wanna say this to some of you. If you are looking for a spouse, do not look for someone who can fill that pretty box for you. Number one, they're not gonna be able to do it for you. And, and then when they can't, you're gonna be questioning your identity. Listen, this issue of identity is so between you and God, it's not, your spouse doesn't even determine your identity. God determines your identity. What we do as spouses is champion God's identity in each other. We don't give identity to one another. If your spouse is mistreating you, if your spouse is engaging in bad behavior, you need to know this. One of the most grace-filled things you can do is to say enough is enough. I'm no longer attaching my identity to your behavior. See, it cuts off that ability for that person to manipulate you, and hopefully, under God's grace and anointing, it will send them to the feet of Jesus. See, the reason they're manipulating you is because they're looking for their identity too. And you can't fill it either. Do whatever you need to do to direct them to Jesus. Honey, I love you, but don't look to me for your identity. (laughs) I love you, but don't look for me to fill that pretty box in your life you go to the only person who can do it. Or in friends. It means that when we separate our identity from that compartment, it means that we're able to love our friends without condition. You know, whether they fail us or stick with us or whatever, we're able to be grateful for the relationships that are in our lives. So, my attitude towards these things indicates if I understand the grace of God. So our last question, well, what am I going to do about it? Well, here's a couple of things I want to suggest. If my compartments are empty this morning, I'm going to have hope. If my compartments are full, I'm going to share. See, this is what grace creates in us regarding the compartments of finance and function and family and friends in our lives. If my compartments are empty, I'm going to hope. If my compartments are full, I'm going to share. Remember, the context of this passage is that Jesus is talking to religious leaders who have resources, and he is exposing why they are not walking in grace. The way that they handle their physical resources is an indication that they have graceless hearts. That's what Jesus is getting at. Listen, for some of you, I'm talking about these compartments, and you're thinking, wow, that compartment is empty in my life. Or I have two that are empty in my life. Or all of those seem empty right now in my life. And like I said, it is a painful place to be, like it was for Lazarus, when you are going through this life day to day, and there's not much to show for finances. When there's not much to show for family and friends and function. That's a painful place to be. And yet the pain is not the full story. Listen, if your compartments are empty this morning, church, you need to know you have permission to hope in the midst of your pain. Hope has something to do with the future. It means that I'm feeling pain today, but I still have a future tomorrow. I'm hurting today, but there's still something that God has for me tomorrow. I'm not seeing God answer my prayers today, but I'm going to keep praying because I'm going to see the breakthrough eventually. And if I don't see it in this life, then I'm going to live in glory with Jesus forever. I'm going to get to hang out with Abraham, the man of faith. And we're all going to get to celebrate that from beginning to end, this story was by faith we received the grace of God forever, eternal life. Amen. Let's put our hands together and thank the Lord. But if your compartments are full, if your compartments are full, it means that we get to share. See, if the compartment of my finances full. Well, that's a blessing that I've received from God, but grace has detached my identity from that compartment. And it means that I'm able to look at those who have very little and see how what God has put in my compartment can mean something for their life as well. See, when God has filled my function compartment, and as it turns out, I have leadership and influence and roles to play. It means that God has not given me those things so that I can manipulate and control people. See, when my identity has become detached from that compartment, it means if there's something in it, my leadership and influence was given by God only for one thing, and it was for the benefit of people who do not have influence. It was for those who do not have a voice. It was for those who do not have the ability to speak up for themselves. Amen? That's why God filled that for me. See, if God has filled your compartment of family, if you look at your family and you think, wow, I have a lot to celebrate in that compartment, God did not give that to you just so that you could experience it. He's given it to you so that you can expand the definition of family to include people who do not have families, of which there are many. And listen, these compartments go together you can almost be sure that if someone is low in the finance compartment, they will be low in the other ones as well, as it was the case for Lazarus. So if God has given me a table and around it are wonderful family members and my home is full of love, that is not just for me. It's for those who never get invited to tables. It's for those who don't have a family. God's given me that for their sake as well. Or in friends, if God has given me a strong network of friends, I can tell you what God wants to do is he wants to use that network for missions, sisters and brothers. He wants to use that network to connect to the lonely. He wants to use that network for, to fill the compartments of people who have empty compartments in the friend area. If the worship team could come forward, I just want to share with you something personal out of my life as we close here. Normally I don't share stuff that is this personal, but I'm, I'm going to here and just track with me. I looked it up yesterday. My wife and I, we both work full-time. Our combined incomes are significantly lower than the median average income in the United States. And that's not a surprise, because I'm in ministry, she's in social services. These aren't big money makers, typically, (laughs) all right? And so our combined full-time income is lower than the median income. I bet some of you in this room are in a similar place as where we are. But that being said, this is also true about me and my wife. We are okay. We're in the middle class. You know, the the scriptures, when they write, it's sometimes, if you're in the middle class in this room, sometimes it's hard for us to understand what Jesus is getting at in the scriptures because the middle class almost didn't exist in Jesus' day. It was really only the very, very rich and the very, very poor. And I think there's something, if you're in the middle class in this room, that makes us read these passages about wealth and think, well, that doesn't include me because I'm not rich, because we can point to other people who are rich. But friends, I wanna say something to you that was said in one of our missions videos a few weeks ago, you heard it. I am, I'm talking to me in Chelsea now, we are grotesquely rich. And I know that because I've seen grotesque poverty. See, we don't even realize it, but if you, if you have running water, you are vastly more wealthy than most of the people on planet Earth today. If you have food to eat every day, my kids always say, I'm starving. I say to them, have you missed one meal ever in your life? I know they haven't. <laughs> it always comes. That's most of us. See, I'm grotesquely rich. Um, A year ago, I had the opportunity to go to Mexico with a friend, and we were in Monterey. Monterey, by many accounts, is a modern city, but we went to the outskirts, to the slums of the city. Our friend took us to visit a church that his mom was pastoring outside of the city, doing an amazing work among the people who live in the slums with very little resources. It got me thinking about a lot of things. You know, friends, this morning as we sit here, the poor are never far from us. They're, they're mixed all throughout our communities and churches and relationships. Listen, in Beaver County, 13% of our population lives beneath the federal poverty line. That The federal poverty line is $24,000 for a family of four. Try to make a budget for a family of four on $24,000. A realistic budget. And see how far it gets you. Some of you know the pain of that because you've had to do it. It's a painful place to be. 13% of the people in our own backyard spread throughout our municipalities, spread throughout our, our towns, our people who are, who are living in that place. 20% of kids in Beaver County, that's one in five kids in Beaver County, live in a household household that's experiencing poverty. You may not know it, but Beaver County is one of the poorest counties in the state of Pennsylvania.
1: In Aliquippa,
0: it's 39% of our families live beneath poverty. 10% of our population lives at a level that is beneath 50% of the federal poverty line. That means there are families of four or more in Aliquippa, 10% of the population is living with $12,000 or less a year. Try making a budget based off of that. Some of those families are my friends. Some of those families worship with us from time to time as a church. Imagine trying to survive off of that. Some of you can. If you can, try to imagine it. Or this, that today, nearly half of the world's population, friends, makes less than $2.50 a day. Over 3 billion people today. 1.3 billion people today make less than $1.25 a day. It's extreme poverty. Today, 22,000 children will die because of poverty. And it happens every day. 22,000 like that every day because of poverty. Why am I telling you all this? It's because, friends, most of us in this room, I understand there may be some of us in this room whose compartments have less in it than others, but most of us in this room are grotesquely rich. Most of us have far more than what the world's population can even imagine. Now, I was in that slum a year and a half ago or whenever it was, and people are living, I don't know if you've ever been in a third world slum, But people are living in trash. Their homes are made out of trash. And this isn't a temporary thing, this isn't a few weeks they hit a hard spot. They were born into a trash neighborhood and they will die in that same neighborhood. Their whole life existence, like Lazarus at the gate, their whole life existence will be in that place. I purposed in my heart that day as we were walking around praying for people, there was a church in that community, a group of believers. We're going to have a budget meeting here in a few weeks. And the church we walked into, the amounts of money we're going to be talking about in our budget meeting, we're not even that like wealthy of a church, relatively speaking. But they wouldn't even be able to fathom the amounts of money that we're going to vote on in just a couple of weeks. And yet there they are. Doing ministry, healing the sick, taking care of each other, talking about what they can give to the poor. And I purposed something in my heart on that day. I decided that all three of our kids, before they turn 18, they're going to accompany me into a third world slum. See, it's not just Mexico. It's true in the Dominican Republic. If you go this summer, you'll get to see it. It's true in India, where I was two years ago. This kind of poverty is the world over. Now, one reason I want to take my kids into a place like that is because I want to give them some perspective on our compartments, right? I want them to understand that by the standards of wealth in the United States, mommy and daddy might not make that much, but we are grotesquely rich. I want them to be able to see it. But friends, at the end of the day, it will not be shocking them with that picture in a slum that gets to their heart. You know what it will be? It will be that the grace of God encounters them. It will be that they understand that from beginning to end, this story is about grace. And because it's about grace, and because my future is not tied to those compartments, it means that whatever is in them, whatever God has given me, is for other people. I'm convinced, church, that God has called Crestmont to be a community of grace. And whatever revival looks like here, it will look like the detaching of our hearts and our kids and our lives from those compartments to open them wide for the Lazaruses who sit waiting for someone to notice them. Whatever revival looks like for us, it will partly look like that. See, as a matter of fact, The picture that Jesus paints in this story isn't a picture of a grace-filled church at all. It's why he's talking to these religious leaders. He's saying there's a gate that keeps the poor people from the rich people in Jesus' story. If there's any place, church, where that gate comes down, it's among us in the community of God's people. It's here where God's grace has penetrated our souls and says, you know what, I'm coming into this community and my compartments are full, then I don't need it because God has filled me for all eternity. So go ahead, help yourself. Or if you're coming in and saying, I have nothing to give, I have nothing to contribute, but don't look at my circumstances, don't judge me by my circumstances because my destiny is far greater than my present. That's what grace can make us as a community of people.